Hi, listeners. We are very excited to share today's episode with you. We have a great guest that we know you'll enjoy. However, we wanted to let you know up front that we recorded this episode using Skype. And, well, we learned some important lessons, primarily that Skype audio can be a little bit temperamental and inconsistent when trying to record a long conversation. We've done our best to make this episode as easy to listen to as possible, but we appreciate your patience as some parts may be more difficult to hear than others. We hope you'll stick with us. There's a lot of good info in this episode that we know you'll be interested to hear. Thanks as always for listening to Redview Blueview. Thanks for joining us for the Redview Blueview podcast. I'm Caitlin, and I'm a conservative Republican who occasionally leans libertarian. And I'm Shelley. I'm an independent, progressive and left-leaning with a pinch of fiscal conservatism. We are two friends on opposite sides of the political aisle who share a love for talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We may not often agree, but we always learn from each other's points of view and believe it's important to have informed, civil conversations on issues that matter. Let's get started. Welcome listeners to the Redview Blueview podcast. This is Shelley. Today we're discussing the private migrant detention center business, and we're fortunate to have a special guest. Alan Zibel is joining us remotely from Washington, D.C. He is with Public Citizen, which is a nonprofit public advocacy organization that has been around for almost 50 years, working on resisting corporate influence in American government, fighting against corruption in our government, advocating for work rights, clean energy, healthcare, and other public interest projects. You can learn more about Public Citizen at citizen.org. Alan Zibel is the research director of Public Citizen's Corporate Presidency Project, which focuses on corporate influence and conflicts of interest in the Trump administration. Alan is a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press and other publications. Public Citizen just published a report of Alan's which we'll post a link to at redviewblueview.podbean.com. The report is entitled, Detained for Profit, Spending Surges Under U.S. Immigration Crackdown. The report outlines how, under Obama's second term and Trump's presidency, federal spending on private companies to handle detention and corrections has surged dramatically. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Alan, your report opens with the following facts. Ten large contracting firms working for five federal agencies implementing federal immigration corrections and detention policies received $2.32 billion in federal contract revenue last year, more than double the $942 million those same companies received in 2013. And your report contains an interesting chart. It shows the top recipients of this flow of our tax dollars to private companies that operate detention centers. It has at the top of the chart, for example, the GEO Group, which runs a detention center here in Aurora, Colorado. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Alan, since you're mm-hmm. sitting in D.C. The Aurora, Colorado facility has been a site of protests on both sides of this issue for the last several mm-hmm. months. And according to your chart, GEO received $628 million last year, so more than three times rise in the last five years. It has $1.7 billion in contracts just during Trump's presidency so far. And then your chart shows other companies like Unisys also earned three times more last year than it was earning five years ago. Deloitte Consulting, which I didn't realize was in the private prison business until I read your report. Um, Its work (laughs) is relatively secret. Um, Deloitte received seven times more in 2018 than it was receiving in 2013. Uh, Another one on your chart is Comprehensive Health Services, CHS. It apparently received something like 200 times more from the federal government in 2008 than it did in 2013. Interestingly, listeners, John Kelly, who worked in the Trump administration on migrant detention issues, before his appointment in the Trump administration, worked for CHS's parent company or the owner of the parent company. And after his work in the Trump administration on migrant detention, he now sits on the board of CHS's parent. Using that as an example, Alan, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about some of your findings with respect to the connections between some of these companies you researched and the Trump administration or between these companies and other government officials. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk about the uh, report in depth. I think really kind of the key thing is, you know, when when I started this research, you know, my assumption uh, going in was that this was really going to be a Trump story. 
And it turns out that, yes, it's a Trump story, but it's also an Obama story. I mean, there there's, has been a huge, huge buildup in kind of detention, um, contracting, you know, over the past decade, um, you know, and it was a relatively high under Bush, too. Uh, it went down for uh, um, a few years under Obama. But as you said, it really ramped up in his in his second term. The difference in, in policies between Obama and Trump on immigrant detention, while there are some, they, they may I, I walked away from this research thinking that they are actually less um, substantial than differences than many of us on the left would like to um, would like to think. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, you know, if you look at some of the quotes from uh, Obama's Homeland Security Secretary, um, you know, Jay Johnson, uh, their, their theory that it would be a deterrent to um, immigrate to illegal immigration or undocumented immigration. Um, you know, the Trump administration shares that theory. Um, that, that's a that's an area of continuity between the administrations. Um, you know, there's there's certainly a difference in this kind of the severe the severity of the crackdown, and I certainly expect that the the um, the numbers in my report will be even higher once the the full um, 2019 is done and all all that all those numbers can be tallied. We really only had two years of Trump data, and really one year. Um, 2017 is really kind of a continuity, a, a year of where federal contracting is this giant, giant field. And you know, the first year of an administration is probably the federal contracting real experts say the first year of any administration really reflects the priorities of the last administration because the um, the boat is so slow to turn, but you know once you get into the second year and the third year, that you can really see uh, a new administration making its its mark. Obama faced a lot of criticism and a lot of pressure from administration from uh, immigration advocates for um, you know using these private detention centers to um, to uh, hold people, and um, you know some of the same people uh, are criticizing Trump, and I think that. Um, because it's Trump and because the um, the um, detention is so egregious and, and so, um, uh, you know, involves kids and, and is, is, is so uh, aggressive that it's uh, eliciting a much bigger backlash than it did under Obama. But yeah, there's there's less there fewer differences between the policies than I than I wanted to believe there were. Right. That, that, that makes sense to me. And I did notice that in reading Right, and we 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 at Public Citizen are not uh, the kind of progressive group that that is scared to go to uh, criticize Obama. Uh, we, we 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 don't mind being critical of Obama. Uh, Alan, this is this is Caitlin, and again, thank you so much for joining. Sure. Us. I did want to mention that because I know in um, Shelley's intro about Public Citizen, she referenced it as a as an advocacy group doing various things. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't really know much about Public Citizen until this opportunity came about. So glad to learn more about it. But I did want to highlight that. I think it's important for our listeners who may not be familiar with Public Citizen. I, it sounds like you would agree. It's it's no, no secret that Public Citizen generally skews more progressive or more liberal. Is that an accurate assessment? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're founded by Ralph Nader, uh, proudly progressive group. You know, I would we, we are not partisan in the sense that we don't endorse candidates we don't uh, endorse for candidates we don't run we don't have a pack we don't do um some of the some of our friends in the progressive movement you know ha have a pack uh, endorse candidates do sort of a mixture of politicking and advocacy we, we don't really do pol we're pretty careful to avoid any kind of politics politicking and electioneering endorsements we we pretty much don't even we don't even do judicial judicial candidates um we, we stay out of that um for the most part okay that's helpful yeah the only, yeah. The only piece i would take issue with is maybe and this is just uh parsing words i guess but when you say public citizen doesn't do much politicking obviously on your website it's all about impeaching trump and taking on trump. <laughs> That to me feels a little bit like politicking, but I'll, uh, I'm happy to take. Yeah, and there's um, I mean, there there is a whole field of the law um, that is is very people other than me are experts in about what what constitutes um, you know an election message, but on 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 detention, yeah, I mean, I think that that it, it is important to realize that Obama was not um, great from my point of view. 
from our point of view on this issue, and that that there's been this huge buildup of a detention prison industrial complex or a detention industrial complex that that a border industrial complex really that that um, has been through you know it probably started it started under Bill Clinton but really ramped up in in recent years. Right, and your report interestingly talks about not just connections with either the Trump administration or the Obama administration at both the state and federal level. So, for example, your report says yep. former head of ICE Julie Meyer. Was on the board, as does Scott Kerman, formerly California's top state corrections official. Mm-hmm. GEO Group hired the former second-ranking ICE, Daniel yep. Bradley. Talk a little bit about those connections and, and how that influences this buildup. What we've seen uh, is the growth of a pretty significant border industrial complex that's fairly significant, fairly similar to um, the the military um, contracting industry, which is, you know, there's a lot of former Pentagon officials that are going to Lockheed Martin, you know, for many, many years, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, um, and creating a really huge, very influential industry, um, most of which is centered right here in Northern Virginia. And you can see some of the same players popping up in the um, Homeland Security, border security, world um, and it appears that this you know sector um, is growing and and influential and kind of spans uh, you know spans multiple administrations and Alan this is Caitlin I um, I just wanted to go back I agree with you it sounds like there are a lot of similarities between other quasi private contractors like defense I think that's a great example I did want to go back to this question around some of the revenue and the spending and the budget. Um, I wanted to ask, because I don't think we've talked about it yet, going back to your report, and I know that our listeners probably don't have the benefit of the report in front of them. Sure. But on your first page, you um, highlight some data similar to what Shelley was talking about. And as an example, you say that uh, the 10 largest contracting firms received $2.32 billion in 2018, up 17% uh, from nearly $2 billion. Sure part of President Donald Trump's term. And then on another spot, you talk about how the budgets for ICE and CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, are up to $22 billion, up from about $28 billion. But I was trying to make the comparison. Those are obviously big dollars. And I know in your report, you have a chart that talks about the average daily detainees over the course of Trump's administration have gone from about 35,000 to 50,000 a day. That's a 43% increase in the number of detainees, and those budget increases are only about 8 to 15%. So sure. to me, I guess I'm trying to understand if we've got an increased need uh, to support these detainees, regardless if we agree with the policy or not, we can talk about that. But if there's an increased need of about 40 plus percent and only an 8 to 15 percent increase in the budget, that doesn't seem outrageous to me. What's your perspective on the relationship between those two metrics? So the point I would make to, toward a conservative point of view is, is this the most economical way to deal with what's undeniably a, an issue that needs to be dealt with? Is detaining people the most cost-effective way? And, and I would argue it's not. I mean, I would argue that placing people, particularly children, with relatives, uh, and then requiring to, them to appear in court, or or implementing a um, you know a refugee program that that where a, a legal pathway for people to be refugees in the United States, you know if they're fleeing violence from their foreign country, particularly in um, places uh, around the country that are actually depopulated and need more people. I'm you know not necessarily your part of the country in Colorado, but you know there's parts of upstate New York, there's parts of Western Pennsylvania, parts of Ohio that that just don't have the population that they used to. There's, you know, frankly, a need for more people in uh, those parts of the country, just in my personal view. Uh, not really a public citizen position, just my personal opinion. So, I mean, I, I would think that conservatives would be concerned with the just huge, huge budget increases in uh, uh, immigration enforcement uh, over the past 20 years. So you haven't seen concern about that on uh, Capitol Hill. It doesn't seem to be a um, Republican Party. It's kind of seems to have lost its focus on um, fiscal restraint, but which was kind of their thing for, for, <laughs> for as long as I can remember. But um, just unbelievable amount of money. I would uh, think that the refugee resettlement, the you know, legal refugee resettlement would, would be a more humane and much more cost effective way to do that. Um, you know, not 
really my field of expertise, but um, it, it sort of stands to reason that the refugee resettlement program would cost a, a heck of a lot less. Yeah, and I'd love maybe in a few minutes we can start to transition into some of the policy issues around immigration. I'd love to talk about that and get your your feedback on that. You're not going to get any disagreement from either Shelley or me that the spending, if it's on immigration or anything else right now on both sides of the aisle, is completely out of control. I agree with you as a Republican, as a conservative. I'm very disappointed in that lack of fiscal responsibility uh, that we're seeing demonstrated from the current Congress. The only point I was trying to make was you know, as Shelley was reading off some of the numbers around the budgets and the revenues for these private contractors going up, I just think it's important to also acknowledge that we also have many more thousands, tens of thousands of people that we're trying to trying to accommodate. And so I just want to make sure that that correlation is clear when we think about the budget. And your report does, Alan, this is Shelley, it does talk about how the idea of private detention centers and correction centers was sold to the public in the 80s under President Reagan. <laughs> Idea that cost was, savings. Cost savings. It was going to be a practical and innovative solution to crowding and costs. And then decades later, we see that private cost savings for the government. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, the the Department of Justice studied this backwards and forwards under Obama. Very, you know, unfortunately, in my view, toward the very, very end of the Obama administration, they concluded that that there was no, you know, particular reason to use uh, private prisons in the Bureau of Prisons in the Federal Justice Department prison system, which is separate from immigrant detention. So they they decided that, you know, Sally Yates, um, you know, published a report, issued that order. Um, they were move away from it in the end, you know, this was August of 2016, right before Trump was elected. That started started some conversations and back and forth. You know, Homeland Security was also taking a look at it. They were, they seemed like they were um, much more conflicted and uncertain about whether that would be the right move because they were more dependent on private detention, private companies. Uh, and then obviously after Trump was elected, the DOJ and ICE stopped that conversation completely. You've seen also um, the states that are most um, reliant on private detention are Texas and Louisiana. And particularly in Louisiana, there's a company called LaSalle Corrections that has a bunch of private prisons in, in Louisiana that are also taking ICE detention. And that's um, an interesting issue because it's, be, it's become a real revenue source and a, real, and a job source for uh, small towns in rural Louisiana. So that they, they are absolutely encouraging and supporting of this industry for, um, you know, pretty much for minimum wage or low wage jobs in in very kind of economically struggling parts of, of rural Louisiana. That's a part of the dynamic that um, is quite interesting is, is, is um, these facilities are welcomed in those areas. Alan, I just saw that article yesterday in the Washington Post about LaSalle in Louisiana and how they're holding now 8,000 of the total federal detainees, 50,000, quite, quite a few. But this cost issue is interesting to me. I think that we have to look at it a little deeper. I want to point out the immigrants who are held in these private facilities, the contract with the federal government, are not criminals, but for their entering the United States without documents. They're not typically dangerous people who have committed crimes or been charged with crimes. But there are some of these same issues with the criminal corrections aspect of this as well. I used, mm -hmm. to, I used to work for a criminal defense attorney who had criminal clients in federal detention centers. This attorney happens to be a conservative Republican. He's been practicing for a very long time. So he's witnessed this federal government's shift to privatize prisons from government mm -hmm. prisons. And he says that the conditions have deteriorated so tremendously with the shift because of this profit motive, meaning so a smaller and smaller portion of the amount that the federal government pays per inmate is actually being spent on the inmate. Uh, and more and more of that is going to profit for the company's executives and shareholders. So the result, both in the criminal and in the immigrant non-criminal context, is terrible conditions, inadequate nutrition, severely lacking medical care, um, in inadequate staff and the ability to handle these in inmates, which he pointed out was especially troublesome in the criminal context. Um, violence between inmates, injuries and deaths. And with the immigration, in the immigration context, we know that more than two dozen immigrants have died in custody since Trump took office. So we, we've heard stories on the news about immigrants being denied 
soap, toothbrushes, showers for weeks, in many cases sleeping on a cold floor, very cold conditions, children taking care of other children, soiled clothes. Um, so the, the, I guess the question I have, and I wonder, Caitlin, if you'll disagree on this, the big picture to me is whether a private company should be profiting from detention centers. Doesn't it seem obvious to to both of you, I guess this question is for both of you, that when you privatize detention centers, you thereby create this massive profit motive for corporations running them. Therefore, the money spent per detainee decreases while profit increases and health and safety of detainees necessarily decreases. So, you know, would you agree with me that prisons and detention centers should not be private? They should be, this is an essential function of the, of the government. My answer is just I agree with that. They should not be a, a function of the private sector. The, you know, the private sector has very thin, if not existent, evidence that it can save money and uh, in this regard. You know, the risks um, are huge. There's a very compelling um, Mother Jones feature that a, a guy did, a reporter did, who he worked as a prison guard in Louisiana for a few months and wrote a guy named Shane Bauer did this very compelling story and there's and he also did a video documentary where he kind of snuck his cell phone in there into the prison and um pretty moving pretty compelling stuff if you uh if you watch it it's all online on youtube and i, I found that very compelling when i was researching this topic yeah this is this is caitlin it was interesting because i found an opinion piece opinion not uh, not news but on the washington post of all places which generally does not align with conservative uh, perspectives but they had an interesting opinion piece um, from august of 2016 talking about one of the reasons why federal private prisons are perhaps struggling with issues around conditions and things like that is that their contracts are not performance or outcome based and alan maybe you know more about this but you know they are they are private in one sense, but obviously they're getting paid by the government, so it's kind of a quasi-private model, and there's really no incentive based on the current contracts with a lot of these contractors to to do better. And so, you know, should we shut down private prisons? I don't know. Or is there a chance how we contract with these uh, organizations, you know, groups like the Geo Group or whatever, so that they're so that their compensation is based on performance, it's based on conditions, it's based on how either criminal inmates or, or immigrant detainees are treated. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Alan? Yeah, I mean, my, my question would be if you if we if you create a whole regime of inspections and metrics and health and safety and all that stuff, you know, are you you know, ironically, are you, <laughs> you creating a whole kind of unnecessary regulatory apparatus when you could just have the government do it like it, it, it you know, typically does <laughs> you know are, are you are you just adding costs there to re- oversee a traditionally government function that is now being run by the private sector for unclear reasons <laughs> i mean we would never we we always argue in favor of strong regulation but in this case it seems like what why not just have the government do it i, I get that i'm just my, i guess i'm trying to make the point maybe i'm not articulating it well if it is government employees that are authoring these contracts with these private contractors is it a is it a problem of our own making meaning could we be contracting differently? Could we could we have different standards? You know, is there is there something that we can basically fix it versus just completely throwing it away and moving to a fully public government-run model? Well, I think you know California, for example, and I think Illinois, now the city of Denver actually, um, which I learned from Alan's report, um, has eliminated contracts, realizing basically giving up, saying you know in California there's so much gang violence in the private corrections facilities. They're just doing a terrible job, and, and the state of California tried various things, and no more. We're going to go back to um, uh, prisons being run by the government and yeah. take profit mode out. I don't think that there's a better solution within. I, I mean, also, don't forget, there are some states that just never did this at all. I don't think private prisons are at all used in New England or the Mid Atlantic. There's. Um, I believe that the exception, and I, I mean, I'm not entirely certain that that's a blanket statement. I have not heard much about my about Maryland using it, New York State, Massachusetts. I, I've not seen much about that. There, I did recall seeing a clip that Vermont, of all places, they don't have a private prison in Vermont, but they were actually shipping 
um, some inmates to a private prison in a different state in, I think, probably the South. So they, while, while they didn't actually have, you know, in the state of Vermont, they had a prison overcrowding issue and were making use of a different state's private prison, but fairly certain that the, that there's huge parts of the country with big populations that don't use private prisons at all. Alan, let's move on, if you wouldn't mind. I'd like to kind of get into some of the policy issues, and you alluded to some of these earlier uh, in our conversation, and they're also referencing your report around, really, how did we get to this point, right? We have this influx and this surge of uh, immigration, especially at our southern border. What have been some of the contributors? So I'd, I'd like to talk about that. Before I jump in, though, Shelley, I just wanted to make one response. Um, you had mentioned, and I know Trump has been widely criticized for some of these terrible deaths that have occurred um, of migrants, including children, while they're in the care of ICE and CBP. I actually found some data, although it's a terrible thing, the numbers under Trump um, are very similar to what has happened under the Obama administration. So according to the American Mm -hmm. Immigration Lawyers Association, in 2009, 10 people in ICE custody died, 12 people died in 2016. The numbers under Trump have been 10 in 2017, 12 in 2018. I'm not trying to minimize how terrible that is, but I just want to make sure, you know, Trump is really criticized, and, and I just want to make sure our listeners understand that those, sadly, I think, happen as a function of the system that exists today. Right, and I think the report points out that this surge in detention contracts started in the Obama administration yeah. and continues through Trump, so I think that's consistent. Okay, so Alan, uh, what I'd like to talk about, if you don't mind, and, and, and you reference this in your report, is the Flores Agreement. And I know one of the most hotly debated elements of illegal immigration, certainly during Trump's administration, is this idea of family separation. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes just to talk about Flores. I think it's especially important because, based on my reading, much of the increase in apprehensions at the southern border are tied to what they call family units. And I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Yeah. So I'd like to just quickly, if if you guys will indulge me for a few minutes to walk through Flores, what it is and kind of the evolution. And Alan, I'll pause occasionally so that you can chime in in case I'm I'm saying anything incorrectly. Flores is a 1997 court decree that laid out national detention standards for what are called unaccompanied alien children. And that's usually shorthanded as UACs. Uh, The court decree required that children should be detained in the least restrictive setting possible for the shortest period of time. Now, it's important to remember that in the 1997 Flores Agreement, accompanied minors, meaning that they're arriving at the border with a parent or another adult or family members, they were not contemplated. That's what's called family units. Nor was there a specific timeline for that reference to the, quote, shortest period of time. In 2015, the Obama administration, as part of their immigration policy, decided to start detaining families for the duration of their immigration cases. They established some of the family detention centers and these cages that are still used today. There was a federal district court judge in 2015 that ruled that that family detention violated Flores. But more importantly, that that judge also reinterpreted Flores to account for both UACs and accompanied minors or family units. The judge also ruled that UACs and family units could not be detained for more than 20 days. That was a somewhat arbitrary threshold um, that wasn't part of the original agreement. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the federal court uh, judge's decisions in 2016, which put the Obama administration in a tough position. They could either separate children from their parents, family separation, or they could basically release them into the U.S. with the promise of returning later for some sort of civil proceeding, and Obama's policy was more along the lines of catch and release. Okay, so let me pause there. Any any questions or issues with that overview of Flores so far? I think that sounds accurate. Okay, Alan? Yeah, that sounds great, yeah. Okay, great. So let's fast forward to Trump. So in May of 2018, and you talk a little bit about this in your report, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a new zero tolerance policy of the Trump administration, meaning that the administration would criminally prosecute all adults detained for illegal border crossings. This meant that children had to be separated based on that new 20-day limitation that was added to Flores in 2015. That zero tolerance didn't last very long. In June of 2018, Trump announced a change. He issued an executive order to theoretically end family separation. We can debate whether or not that actually happened, but that executive order included a few important aspects. 
NPR reported that it included detaining families together while they await their court dates. Uh, the goal of the administration was to quote, maintain family unity. Trump also asked Attorney General Sessions to modify the Paris agreement so that families could stay together until their court dates. In August of 2019, the Trump administration announced a new regulation that's gotten a lot of pushback uh, that it would allow, allow families to stay together. The new rule would also establish new standards for conditions and simultaneously remove that 20-day maximum detention limit. I, I know that's a lot. I appreciate you guys indulging me, but I think Flores is often referenced during this conversation. It's, it's driving a lot of the issues around family separation policy, so I think it's important to understand it. What do you think, Alan, about from a policy perspective, and even if it's not the official public citizen policy <laughs> It sounds like a good idea to me. Rather than pulling kids from their families, let's keep them all together. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that we don't have an official policy stance on it, um, I mean, I would think that a progressive, compassionate immigration policy would uh, involve no detention um, at all and would involve, I wouldn't say catch and release, but I would say, you know, if the, if the government had contracts, had relationships with refugee uh, resettlement organizations, you know, that could help people uh, live with relatives in a humane way while their immigration claim, um, their um, application for asylum is being processed. I think that would be a more humane and far less costly way to do these things. I mean, I personally, you know, think that the uh, Trump administration's, um, you know, it gets less attention, but their moves to curb legal Im immigration uh, and curb asylum are just absolutely repugnant. I mean, um, um, and I, as I said earlier, there's there are you know we we are not you know as Trump said we're we're, we're not full at all like the, we we have parts of the country that are really you know struggling could use a, a, a much you know higher you know, population we should be accepting more refugees period. The thing that I would add, Alan, this is Shelley. I understand that there's a legitimate debate uh, that we can have about how to handle this influx whether to take to take. There's a legitimate debate to be had on asylum laws and how much immigration is appropriate. But my point, Caitlin's heard me say this before, if we're really worried about too many people coming in, aside from refugees, just simply enforce the immigration laws that exist against businesses. So there's a major supply of jobs in this country for immigrants. People come mm -hmm. here People come here because they know they can find a job. Businesses are often hire knowing employees are undocumented. If you wanted to stop the influx of immigrants, I think what the government would do is the agencies would simply use their existing resources to find employers and that would stop the supply of jobs, which would reduce the influx of immigrants. Neither party actually wants to curb businesses profiting from undocumented workers. So instead, we're in this position where we're discussing whether locking up families and separating children from their parents is right or wrong. I, I think we have to, to look at that. I think it, Caitlin's question is interesting. I don't think we can minimize the effects of detention on non-criminals. That's why I mentioned these people are non-criminals. In, in law school, I worked in a human rights law clinic. I was a student attorney for a Chinese immigrant who was held in detention for years while her asylum application was pending. Her asylum case was based on her pending forced sterilization under China's one-child policy. Oh, that is, she had one child, she did not want to be sterilized. In fact, she wanted another child. Um, so she was in detention without her child and husband for years, and that's a horribly demoralizing experience, spending years with her child and husband. These are situations where people routinely become suicidal. And, you know, in this case, it was an innocent person seeking asylum. The 20-day rule that you mentioned as part of the foreign settlement occurred because there is research and science behind the fact that detention is demoralizing. And it's really especially bad for kids. The idea behind that 20-day rule was let's not keep the kids in detention for too long because it's traumatic. Um, to switch from that to family separation... Um, I'm wondering if we can all agree that the Republican Party has always had family family values and it's on its platform. Can we agree that separating families, taking young children away from uh, their parents, is absolutely the morally the wrong thing to do? Can we agree on that? Yeah, I, I don't like the idea of family separation, which is why I would assume that you support the new proposal by Trump from two months ago to keep families together while their cases are being processed. Do you, well, do you support that? I, I do agree. I, I would rather see families together than separate, yes. But again, then we're going back to 
this research that had already been done, which is you can't keep families locked up uh, for such a long period. And I think Alan's response um, spoke to that. You know, there's no, um, there's there's very little flight risk with people who are applying for asylum. There's there's a problem with uh, locking people up for long periods who are who are seeking asylum. But I want to be really clear on this. And Alan, even in your response a few a few moments ago, you were referencing both refugees and asylum. Those are very different things legally, and I think it's important to understand the difference because I think sometimes they're used, and I'm not saying you did this, Alan, but I think sometimes they're used interchangeably. So refugees are displaced from their home country, and they are applying for entry to the U.S. while living abroad. Asylum is different. Asylum, you have reached the U.S., or at least our border, and you are seeking permission to stay. Now, often, many on the left are, are referring to this surge of illegal immigrants as asylum seekers. But asylum has a very high standard for what that means. It is legally defined as providing protection for people who can show that they fear persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political views, or membership in a particular social group in their home country. The example that you just gave about that Chinese immigrant, that's a terrible story. That is not, though, representative of the majority of the immigrants on the southern border. Most of those immigrants are seeking economic opportunity. Now, I'm not saying that that's a terrible thing to to try and seek economic opportunity in the U.S., but it's not an asylum-qualified criteria. And well, I think that's an important distinction. Let me correct you. On, you're, you're right about the definition of asylum, but you're wrong about the difference between asylum and refugees. Asylum is simply the thing that you apply for to become a refugee in the United States. So from a legal standpoint, they're identical. You were right when you described the that it is very difficult to uh, become a refugee uh, from a legal standpoint and to qualify for asylum. You have to show that you are an imminent threat in your uh, in your home country. Asylum is just the process by which people apply to become a refugee. Or once you become a refugee in the United States, then you uh, then you're labeled you a, a refugee. You're labeled a refugee. Eventually, okay. you get a green card. It's it's one of the few legal ways to 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 immigrate to the United States. The people who are coming from the southern border, a lot of them now are from Central America where they do have legitimate fears of violence against them, all kinds of um, uh, gang violence and corruption. As a as a non lawyer, I mean, I, I you know I have a personal friend, a family friend who's an uh, you know who's a legal legal 100% legal immigrant from India family uh, came here and you know he is very resistant to I mean he, he leans to the center left but is you know very uh, uh, resistant to what he perceives as, as Democrats open borders uh, you know ideas you know he feels a, a lot of, of Indian American immigrants feel like they did they, they played by the rules um, you know, why should somebody who just shows up at the border, get, you know, jump jump ahead in line? And I, I get that. But, you know, I do think that we have a responsibility to Central America since, uh, you know, U.S. policy um, you know, was very closely tied to Central America. You know, we um, have a responsibility to be compassionate to those refugees and should take in more Central American refugees, not fewer. Um, that That's um, just how I see it. You know, Trump's uh, attempt to demonize uh, those folks as all being, you know, part of MS-13, um, you know, which is MS-13 is a real thing. It's a real problem. You know, it's awful, but that shouldn't mark <laughs> the entire population of refugees in the kind of racist way he likes to smear the you know entire population of millions of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, um, you know, if a Democratic president wins, um, you know, it's going to be a tough area to figure out where the line should be drawn. But I, I personally think it should be drawn in a much more compassionate way than Trump or Obama did. I agree with you. I, I don't like the way that Trump uh, often kind of makes generalizations around immigrants, especially from the southern border, coming up from Mexico or, or Central America as uh, gang members and violent and murderers. I don't like that either. I agree that we should be compassionate. I would just share these last two stats. The UN reports that the number of actual grants of asylum, so asylum applications that have actually been approved, 
really have not changed very much, even through 2018. Uh, the U.S. usually grants in the range of 20 to 25,000 approved asylum grants per year, according to the U.N. That has been very consistent. So as much as we talk about Trump's kind of crackdown on asylum claims, the data seems to show that the actual approvals are, are relatively the same. And the other piece I would say is we think about asylum, and Shelley, I appreciate you clarifying the asylum-refugee relationship. I didn't know that. But going back to our original topic around the number of detainees and, and the role of private prisons and how many people we're trying to accommodate, I thought this was an interesting st statistic as well. Asylum, in 2014, there were about 40,000 asylum applications waiting for a decision. From PBS, they reported that as of October 2019, there were 338,000 asylum claims. Now, obviously not all of those claims are gonna be approved, but I think it's fair to say that part of the problem around this mass of immigrant detainees, be it adults, children, children, families, what have you, is that people are claiming asylum. They are not likely to get asylum because of whatever reason. They're certainly not all approved. And that is really clogging up the system. So Shelley, when you talk about people waiting for months or God forbid years, all of these things I think are kind of, you know, working together. And the fact that we have so many more immigrants claiming asylum when they're likely not to be granted it based on the standards for asylum seekers, that's adding to this problem. The other statistic that's important is that people who are filing these applications virtually never miss a court date. They're not flight risks. There's no uh, no real disadvantage to not locked up uh, and with our tax dollars. And relatedly, I don't have a stat in front of me, but I believe that the majority of undocumented people in the U.S. are visa overstay, come from visa overstays rather than uh, border crossings. So I think we've focused a ton on border crossings um, under the Trump administration because it kind of goes in line with his narrative, but it's not really where the majority of undocumented people come from. I agree, and that's why I say if we were really, if Republicans were really concerned about immigration, they would go after businesses. Yeah, and Alan, Alan, you're correct. The visa overstays, thanks for bringing that up. I don't know that it's the majority. I think when I've researched it in the last few months, it's been about 40% of the kind of illegal immigration population in the U.S. is, is visa overstays. So it may not be the majority, but it's it's certainly a large percentage. And I agree with you, Shelley. We've talked about this before. I think the the employer side of this, the employer enforcement and following programs and, and laws like E-Verify, et cetera, I think that's very important. I wish there was more focus on that as well. Obviously, this is such a complex problem that all of these different piece parts that need to work together, I think we need to be pushing on all of them. And so I think that's a fair assessment. And visa overstays, that's a big issue too. I know from my own experience living overseas a couple of years ago, there is no way we could have overstayed living in our European country without being caught and probably deported very quickly. So the fact that we have people living in the U.S. for years on visa overstays, uh, that, that's an issue. We have a lot of enforcement issues for sure. I do think let's invest some more money in processing these claims and immigration judges and whatever the, the framework is there to try to process these more quickly so that you can move people either out of these detention centers into the interior of the U.S. under the existing law or return them back to their home country if that's the option, whatever the solution is. But I, I agree with you. I don't like the fact that anyone, especially families or children, are sitting in these detention centers for months on end. I was reading that as of August, the average the average wait time or the average stay time, rather, we're at about 45 days, which is an improvement of where it was a year ago. A year ago, it was almost 100 days. During the Obama administration, it, it usually vacillated between 40 to 70 days. So we're not totally out of whack from how it was before. But to your point earlier, Shelley, you know, the thought of children sitting in a detention center for 40, 50 days is terrible. So how do we how do we make it more expedient to process these applications? I think that's worth the investment. Also, Alan, your report addressing the economics of this talks about campaign contributions. The report says yes. as a history of political campaign spending having spent more than, I think, $8.9 million campaign contributions. Can you talk a little bit about 
the effect that type of spending has on government action? Oh, sure. I mean, well, we, we um, big, uh, big critics of Citizens United and, and the influence of corporate money on politicians. And, and you know, we believe in, in small dollar funding of political candidates with public matching as a way to um, to get corporate money, you know, out of our political system. I mean, I think that um, and, and some states have certainly made a lot of I'm not sure what you've done, whether there's a ballot initiative in Colorado or not, or, or, or to what extent I haven't read up on that, what it's been an issue there. But, you know, all over the country moving toward, uh, you know, public funding of, of campaigns, um, you know, to get corporate money out of politics. Um, you know, I think that's very important. And this is Caitlin. I think I don't need to do this whataboutism, but I think it's important. Shelley, your point here about, and it's in Alan's report, that the for-profit prison industry has spent nearly $9 million since 2000 on campaign contributions. Uh, Alan, you link to opensecrets.org, which is a great yes. website to research. Uh, it's not, of course, just the for-profit prison industry that does this. Like the, casino, oh, sure. the casino gambling industry, they've done $350 million, professional sports, over $100 million. So yep. I want to make sure we're not pointing fingers at the for-profit industry as though they're the only ones doing it. The one thing you learn about campaign finance is that it doesn't take much money to <laughs> implement. I mean, the, doll, the actual dollar amounts are relatively small. You know, if a politician gets $50,000 over his or her career from one industry, that's pretty significant. I mean, it's. I think it's less about the actual dollars and more about the industry is going to their fundraisers, is pressing the flesh, is, you know, they're delivering, you know, here's a $2,700 check, here's another $2,700 check. It's less about the individual totals and more about the physical relationships and the, the steadiness of the contributions uh, and so on. Your report, Alan, companies and the government have build up in Pension contracts and, and the profit that is earned from these companies are tax dollars. And as I point out, the result is deteriorating conditions for for immigrants and and the, and the possibility of that more people are being locked up because of profit. So that's where the the connection is, and with you know with what looks to be like you know American corruption. And you're right, it's not just in this industry; it's with as Alan pointed Every out, the military industrialization yeah. complex and, and several other industries. And it's, one of our biggest problems, I think. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, I agree. M- money and influence in politics is, is a huge issue. Perhaps we can do a separate a separate episode on that. I, I don't think you'll get any disagreement from me there. As we get close to wrapping up here, Alan, your report contains on this issue of privatization and, and the effect that it's had. It, it contains what I think is some good news, and that is some public pressure against. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, so, so you say in your report that um, Wells Fargo has stopped doing business uh, in the industry, stopped lending to industry. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase said we no longer provide banking services to the private prison industry. Bank of America announced that it won't yeah. be credit. Uh, Wall Street analysts have stopped producing research on GEO and CoreCivic, uh, which are publicly publicly traded companies. Barclays, PNC Bank, and then you've got some other types of industries also saying, including a furniture company, Wayfair, saying they won't won't do business anymore uh, to support this industry. This has been a surprisingly a surprising development in my view, and a, a pretty successful um, advocacy campaign that the um, Center for Popular Democracy uh, started to really raise pressure on banks to stop uh, making loans to the industry. It, most of the major banks have pulled out. You know, my theory on that is the it's just kind of a cost benefit analysis for these banks. They don't represent a huge source of business um, for you know Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan. It's not crucial line of business for them. And um, the reputational risk of doing business with these companies was just rising and rising. Now, I don't think that that it will be um, lethal for the private prison industry. There's always um, hedge funds, private equity that are that are willing to make uh, loans to people and um, to industries. If they can pay back their if they can make their loan payments, you know, somebody's going to make them the loan. It will probably be at a higher uh, a higher rate. So, I, you know, I don't think that financial firms are going to squeeze these companies out of existence, but it could make it more expensive for them to uh, raise funding for expansion. I uh, tend to be kind of a free market libertarian on some of these issues. I have no issue with banks or other lenders making these decisions, but I will say I don't like it. And, and last year, 
you may recall this, Alan, that uh, Bank of America was in the news because they were saying that they were going to no longer offer financing uh, to gun manufacturers, other companies, even though they're not in the banking industry, like Delta Airlines, they ended their discount for NRA members, things like that. Now, I appreciate that private prisons are not you know, entirely analogous to a consumer product like a, a firearm. But this idea of banks, in my view, sometimes, you know, taking advantage of the political wins that may be happening to demonstrate their level of, quote unquote, wokeness or virtue signaling. I don't particularly like it. But hey, as a consumer, I also have the choice to not bank with Bank of America. So I I do think it's an interesting trend, both with kind of the B2B space like this for profit prisons, but also even from a more consumer facing perspective, like the gun, you know, gun sales and Delta Airlines, things like that. I think we'll continue to see that happen. And obviously some companies are willing to take that stand and, and consumers obviously have the right to respond as they as they choose to according with their their perspective on that issue. And I think it's great because we talked about public finance and campaigns. We have this problem where the government is not listening to the public, and that's what Alan's organization, Public Citizen, works on. But that can be sometimes countered with the public uh, being able to have some power on their own, and, and that has happened with some of these corporate boycotts, so I think it's useful. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think it's a it's a good thing. I mean, I think that particularly with the um, very public nature of these images of children in cages that have been all over the news and, and um, the fact that presidential candidates have been criticizing private prisons and uh, private immigrant detention, it just uh, banks, you know, I'm sure that they have employees internally that are horrified that banks would do this kind of business and it just became easier for them to get out. Now, we did talk about Deloitte a little bit earlier. It's not totally clear what Deloitte's contracts are for. They seem to have something to do with with screening. With I mean, they have some major, major, major uh, government dollars. And Deloitte is obviously a business-to-business company, so there's no real uh, point in a consumer boy- boycott. But there have been reports reports of employees being upset about this work. There certainly are is some internal tension at some of these uh, contractors, um, particularly you know Deloitte, Microsoft, Amazon, companies who do other things among you know employees who don't want to work on this sort of project and feel an ethical concern about it. Alan, is there anything else that in your report that struck you that you want to comment on before we wrap up? No, I'm good. I've been a fun discussion. I learned a bunch of stuff. Well, we did, we did too. I really enjoyed reading your report. It was obviously very well researched. I can only imagine the amount of time that you and perhaps your team spent on it. Um, I may disagree with a lot of public citizens' positions on policies, but I certainly have found your piece and some of the other pieces that I've read just in exploring the website very interesting and thought-provoking. So appreciate Shelley making the connection and opening my eyes to, to the information that your organization shares. All right. I appreciate it. Listeners, again, this was Alan Zibel, the Research Director of Public Citizens Corporate Presidency Project. Please check out his report entitled Detained for, for Profit, Spending Surges Under U.S. Immigration Crackdown. It's available at citizen.org, and also we will post it at redviewblueview.podbean.com. Please subscribe to Redview Blue View on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks, Alan. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Have a good one.